Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I am Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. What a great conversation we had with Peter Nicholson, uh, you know, who is legendary, by, by the way, in Nova Scotia. Uh, you know, he's had a, an amazing career in both the public and private sectors. Um, you know, he's, he's a PhD scientist, basically. Um, and, uh, and, and he's doing some work now with the Canadian Climate uh, Institute. And um, he volunteered basically to put this report together for the public uh, policy forum. I think it's a really important uh, report, whether or not it ever gets executed. You know, he lays out the opportunity for offshore wind in a very compelling, thoughtful, fact-based presentation. That is really enormously valuable for this region because if we're going to get to net zero by 2050, uh, wind is part of that. But what he's saying in this report is that the opportunity may be transformational for Atlantic Canada, where we can become an energy superpower. Imagine where we would actually be sending energy to other parts of North America, because one thing we have more than anything else in Atlantic Canada is wind and lots of it. Yeah, we love to complain about the wind and the cold in our region. Uh, But in this instance, that actual wind could be uh, a huge energy source, as you said, that he talks in terms of us being an energy superpower. And I think that that's, uh, he makes a pretty compelling case there, although he's very clear that it's going to cost tens of billions of dollars, I think maybe 80, 100 billion dollars. He said, you know, he put, he threw numbers on the table that were very, very significant. But, um, you know, did he's quite optimistic that there is a potential opportunity here. There's things that have to happen. There's studies being done right now. But one of the things he does for us today is he lays it out, what the opportunity is, where it could be, uh, where these wind sites could be in offshore Nova Scotia and the rest of Atlantic Canada. And I think uh, it's well worth the time to listen to what he has to say about this important project. And one of the things I took from the report, and I, I, I actually saw Peter make a presentation not long ago, and I really stuck with me, is that it requires a new level of ambition for Atlantic Canada. You know, we have uh, been so, solely, sorely lacking in ambition for a lot of the last number of decades. Now, here's a big opportunity. Uh, will we be able to step up to the plate? And he even said in his report, you know, do we have the audacity <laughs> to become, you know, an energy provider for other parts of North America. And, and, and one of the challenges I think we have, and we talked about it, is government. Because and you and I know government think in four-year cycles. You know, this, this is a 15-year cycle, at least, to, to, to realize this opportunity. And, and both the federal and, and provincial governments have to come together to recognize this opportunity, put the right regulations in place, Make uh, maybe make uh, some financing options uh, feasible to get the projects going and get behind it and stay behind it, whether the governments change or not. Absolutely. And Don, you and I are of a certain age. We remember when the Confederation Bridge was just an idea and then it became a project and then it was delivered. And that's the kind of scale, even bigger than that, that we'd be looking at here. So it does take planning. It will take tremendous effort. But the idea would be to be doing this in the early 2030s, to be actually building out this infrastructure within a, within less than a decade. And uh, so it is ambitious, will require audacity. 
will we be up to the scale and how will it compare to SMRs and all of the other projects, uh, Don, yeah. being proposed for our region? We're just telling the stories for people to understand what's going on in terms of the energy sector. And hopefully at the end of the day, we're going to take advantage of these opportunities and, and build the region into an impressive energy uh, superpower for use, by the way, not only for export, but as he points out, for use in developing ener- electricity intensive energies right here in the region, whether it's green hydrogen or green steel or other opportunities that require a lot of electricity, um, maybe we could be a site, a region for those in- industries right here in Atlantic Canada. Well, I think there's a big economic, uh, you know, windfall if we could have green energy here. We would get a lot of companies locating here just for that, just as they did in Quebec for uh, hydropower. And uh, so I think that that's, uh, you know, that's really important. Uh, I I just want to make one other point before we get into the conversation. This has already happened in the North Sea. This is not, you know, this is not something brand new. It's happening in other parts of the world, and uh, they're doing what we need to do. And so uh, that actually makes it a little easier because we don't, we're not starting from scratch in terms of the knowledge or the expertise that is needed to get this done. Anyway, I thought it was a very insightful, very useful conversation. I hope people will enjoy it. Here's our conversation with Peter Nichols. We are pleased to be joined on the Insights Podcast by Peter Nicholson, the author of the recently released Catching the Wind Report. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Peter, we'd like to expose our listeners to people that have had interesting careers and done very interesting things, and and you have. So would you mind giving us a little bit of a review of your resume and how you ended up as the chair of the Canadian Climate Institute? Sure. Well, very quickly, uh, I was born in Halifax, uh, grew up in Annapolis Royal, attended Dalhousie, got a master's degree in physics there, then went to the U.S., got a Ph.D. in mathematics at Stanford taught in the university system in the U.S. for some years then. Uh, Since that, since coming back to Canada in the early 70s, I've been sort of oscillating back and forth between the the private sector, the business sector, and the government sector, in and out of the federal government a number of times. Uh, Worked in uh, the prime minister's office when Paul Martin was PM. Um, Worked for... Uh, the fishing industry, actually, uh, in Nova Scotia back in the late 70s, the early 80s, Nickerson Fish Company, um, was a senior executive in Scotiabank in Toronto uh, for about 11 years. And uh, <clears throat> and following that, was had a senior position with BCE, the big telecom holding company in Montreal. Uh, then uh, did a stint with the OECD in Paris and founded uh, uh, an NGO called the Council of Canadian Academies that is a secretariat for expert panel studies on uh, issues of scientific importance. And, you know, since then, I've basically been uh, giving informal voluntary policy advice uh, to a number of governments and others uh, uh, from a base that oscillates between Annapolis Royal and the nice weather in Austin, Texas, where I am now uh, during the winter. So can you tell us about the Canadian Climate Institute? Uh, yeah. How did you become chair and what, what does it actually do? Yeah, the, I, I became chair of the Climate Institute basically through a, a connection with a, with a former colleague who about six years ago when they were putting a proposal together to have the 
the Institute funded, hopefully at the time, uh, asked me if I'd allow my name to stand as chair, although I didn't know much about climate, more than just the average person who pays a little attention. Uh, I said, why not? And so here I am still six years later. Uh, the Institute itself was created uh, by the federal government, but as an independent evidence-based organization to provide policy advice. I think there was a feeling that there was just so much misinformation out there on this subject that the federal government felt sufficiently confident, I think, in, in uh, the importance of the subject that they were prepared to take a risk on creating a genuinely independent organization that would not have to clear its statements or anything else with the policy people of the BMO. And uh, so we were born, and uh, we've just been refunded about a year ago. Uh, we don't get all of our money from the federal government. We've also got uh, grants from donations and uh, some smaller ones from corporations. But it's really important to say that we are a very independent organization, uh, both in mind and spirit. Um, the, uh, the mandate is to provide policy advice on the climate file generally. So that includes not only mitigation of greenhouse gases, but also adaptation to the damage that we can't mitigate, and also uh, policies to encourage the growth of a green economy. Uh, it's a national organization, virtual. Uh, we were born virtual, which was <laughs> kind of a benefit when COVID struck. Uh, and we have uh, staff members all the way from the Yukon to Halifax. Well, Peter, you're a good person to ask the next question, and that is, what is your assessment of where we are in terms of addressing climate uh, change in Canada? Yeah. Well, look, on the positive side, uh, there's now no longer much doubt uh, that this problem is real, that uh, it's man-made largely. Uh, so that's, that's positive. Uh, I think uh, the state of modeling uh, as to the implications of climate change, uh, modeling as to the paths of uh, energy transformation needed to uh, mitigate and ultimately zero out greenhouse gases, that work is excellent. Uh, there are a number of policies in place around the world. The, the installation of clean energy is proceeding apace, not as rapidly as it needs to. Uh, where where I'm concerned is that uh, once you get down sort of at street level, uh, the 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 application of a lot of the theory gets much tougher quickly. Uh, we already know that there's a great resistance, even to relatively modest initiatives like the carbon tax, where in fact almost all the revenue of the tax is being returned to people, but they they don't make the connection. So if, we, if we're having trouble with that, I, I really shiver a little bit to think about uh, how tough it's going to be when, when, when the uh, challenge is truly joined. So uh, a lot of optimism on the one hand, uh, but it's, uh, it's clouded by the natural resistance of publics to major change. You recently authored a report entitled Catching the Wave, How Atlantic Canada Can Become an Energy Superpower. That's quite a title. 
Um, the report was published uh, through the Public Policy Forum, an independent Ottawa-based think tank. How did you become involved in this project in the first place? Yeah, I remember distinctly. It was almost exactly a year ago. I attended a small meeting in Halifax organized by the Public Policy Forum, uh, the purpose of which was to look for new ways of generating economic momentum in Atlantic Canada. The PPF has a program called Atlantic Momentum. And uh, I listened around the table. There was about 20, 25 of us there. And, you know, there was a lot of useful things being said, but it was all the same old. I mean, there was nothing I heard that qualified as a game changer. Uh, but but given my <laughs> acute sensitivity to the climate change issue as a result of my position with the Institute, I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute now. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of wind off the coast of Atlantic Canada, and I know that we're going to need to convert that into electricity at a major scale. And so isn't that the game changer? In fact, isn't that about the only thing we can think of that can really uh, move the art sticks in a major, major way. Uh, so Ed Greenspan and I, Ed is the uh, president of the Public Policy Forum, were chatting about it after the meeting, and he said, well, why don't you elaborate on that thesis? Uh, it took about the next eight or nine months for me to read enough and inform myself enough to produce the report. That's how it happened. I love the idea of, of finding ways to use our weather, sometimes harsh weather, as a, to our economic advantage. I've proposed in the past that we should do, I don't know, NATO training for winter and, I don't know, testing <laughs> of cars in winter. So you coming along and saying that offshore wind is actually a, a resource that we should develop, I think that's a very insightful thing, and, I, and I'm really glad you put that on the table. Well, if I could interrupt, I mean, one of the ironies here, is that when was the last time that Atlantic Canada was a basically a, an economic power? It was in the age of sail, where our economy was driven by the motive power of wind at sea. So here we are coming full circle with propellers instead of sails. Yeah, back to use the wind. That's right. Um, <laughs> so we're going to ask you a bunch of questions about the report, but we're going to start by sure. uh, asking you this question. How has wind energy grown around the world in the past 10 years? And do you have a sense of how that, uh, particularly offshore, where, where we are with that? And do do you, what do you what do you in terms of growth? What do you see as potential? Yeah, well, wind, wind energy generally has grown pretty rapidly, and we're talking mostly about onshore, frankly. And if you ever drive through uh, interior California or southern Texas, it's just amazing how many wind farms there are. Uh, and that, and that's true not only in in the U.S. There are also are in Canada. We see them in Nova Scotia, of course. Uh, offshore wind uh, constitutes currently somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of the total wind installation globally, but it's grown from virtually zero 15 years ago. I mean, the first wind farms or the first offshore turbines were put in the water in Denmark back in 1991. But as a as a commercially significant endeavor, it really dates only the last 15 years. Uh, currently, uh, wind energy globally and nationally actually generates between six and seven percent of total electricity. It's about six percent in Canada, seven percent worldwide. And of that total wind uh, generation, 
as I said, about 10 to 15% of it is offshore, but the offshore component is growing very rapidly, particularly in China and in Europe. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, how much electricity we're going to need if we're going to get to net uh, zero by 2050. Uh, some estimates put the number as high as triple the current demand for uh, electricity. So obviously it's not just uh, replacing what we currently have, it's finding a lot more supply. You, you mentioned that uh, uh, wind right now makes up six or seven percent of the existing generation. Uh, right. What will it be by 2050? What, what, what is the expectation in terms of uh, power by wind? Yeah, well, I, I, interestingly, the, the global projections from the International Energy Agency and the national ones from the Canada Energy Regulator, uh, I'm speaking of very, the most recent, uh, in just literally in the last two or three months, uh, indicate in Canada's case with the Energy Regulator that we'll have to roughly double our supply of electricity and about 30% of that will have to come from wind. And when you translate that back, it implies about a tenfold increase in the amount of wind energy that is currently being generated Canada-wide. And when you look at it regionally, the channel, uh, the challenge in Ontario is enormous because the, the energy regulators scenario projects almost 18-fold increase in Ontario. Uh, and around the world, it's similar. Uh, the, as you say, the, some project as much as a threefold growth in energy, uh, in electrical energy generation, uh, and that's a consequence of the electrification of so much of the economy and space heating, transportation, etc., as well as the natural growth in the economy uh, over the next thirty years. So we're looking at an enormous increase in the. Re requirement for uh, for electrical generation, clean electrical generation, mm -hmm. and uh, a great deal of that has to come from wind, uh, particularly in the more northerly latitudes where solar is not nearly as efficient. And in Canada's case, we have relied enormously on hydropower. It generates uh, more than 60% of our electricity now, but there are very few major undeveloped hydro sites left in Canada. So that really isn't an option. Right. So you're, you, essentially you're down to wind and nuclear uh, to make up this enormous increase in the demand for electricity in Canada. You know, this is probably a good place to stop and just talk about how wind energy is kind of measured. I mean, we talk about kilowatts and, you know, megawatts right. and gigawatts and <laughs> like it, for the average person, that's very confusing. You know, I, I know when yeah. I get my electric bill, it's in kilowatts. I know that much. <laughs> but it's can in you kilowatt give, hours, actually. Yeah, <laughs> kilowatt hours, yeah. One kilowatt hour, exactly. You know, so uh, give us a little primer and how, how how people should be thinking about the, the units here a little bit. And, and, and there's one other thing I want you to maybe mention because people don't understand this. Uh, when you talk about uh, uh, a turbine that can generate 15 megawatts, that's at its peak. And, and what it actually yes. delivers is something less right. than that. Could you just, just talk about that for a second? Yeah. 
Yeah, every energy generation technology has something called a capacity factor, that every generation technology is, is somewhat intermittent. Mm -hmm. I mean, hydropower isn't constant all the time. It depends on water levels. Uh, nuclear has to shut down periodically. So the, there is this key factor called the capacity factor, uh, which is the fraction of the theoretical maximum capacity that actually gets used in a year. In the case of offshore wind, that capacity factor is somewhere near 50 to 55%. To put that in context, onshore wind is usually somewhere between 30, 35%. Solar, much lower, maybe 15 to at most 20% in Canada. Uh, hydro, on the other hand, about 70%. So uh, when you look, uh, usually projects are defined in, in gigawatts but what or megawatts, but what really counts is how much energy is delivered. So you have to apply the capacity factor. Now, fortunately, offshore wind is a very high capacity factor. So if you're talking about, uh, I'll use 15 gigawatts as an example. It's a large amount. It's an amount that I describe as one of the scenarios in the report. Uh, it's, amount, it's an amount that I believe is entirely feasible to be generated, uh, let's say, on the Sable Island Bank off uh, the Nova Scotia coast. So 15 gigawatts would would provide uh, the electrical needs of roughly six and a half million households. It would be somewhat more than 10% of Canada's total current electrical generation. Uh, so it's a substantial amount, a very substantial amount. Uh, it would be, to put it another way, it would be almost twice the total electricity consumption of Atlantic Canada currently. And one implication of that, of course, is that if if we were to install and produce 15 gigawatts of capacity offshore, we'd be we'd obviously be exporting a lot of it. Uh, and that that's a that's a key point, actually. In fact, it's I would say it's the major theme of my whole report is that this is an enormous export opportunity. And I'm not talking about export to Europe. I'm talking about export of electrons into Quebec, possibly the northeastern U.S., and ultimately into Ontario, where the need is so great. Peter, just to follow up quickly on, on Don's point there, though, can you tell us how many megawatts these typical single offshore wind turbines can produce, or what's the capacity factor? Yeah, the, the, the current... The current offshore turbines are usually five to ten megawatts. There are already ones being installed at sixteen or fifteen, rather, uh, on the drawing board at twenty. Uh, they're ultimately <laughs> there's there's no obvious limit. the The bigger the turbine, the more efficient it is in producing electricity. But uh, there comes a time when when that theoretical Efficiency is offset by all kinds of problems regarding uh, actually transporting the the, uh, the devices themselves on ships, on roads, uh, out to out to sea. But uh, at 15 megawatts, I think that that's typically the scale which I think of uh, in 10 to 15 years' time will be routine. Uh, so for 15 gigawatts, we're talking about a thousand turbines. Uh, that would cover an area of about 4,000 square kilometers of ocean, uh, which is substantial. But to 
put that in perspective on the Sable Island Bank. I'm not talking about Sable Island. I'm talking about the huge amount of water around Sable Island. There's about 8,000 square kilometers with a water depth that would permit these turbines to be anchored to the ocean floor. So there's more than enough room for 15 gigawatts just on Sable Island Bank. And then there are many other banks on the, around Atlantic Canada. Uh, and, and beyond that, uh, the technology is being developed now uh, to use floating turbines. Uh, that's still, they're still more expensive. It's still a bit uh, in the trial stage, but they should be commercially available within five years. At that point, there's virtually no limit uh, to where these turbines could be placed. Uh, I think you mentioned that, you know, offshore is just getting started in North America and, and there are other parts of the world where, where they're well ahead of us. What, what, which companies are, uh, countries are currently leading in the development of wind power, Peter? Yeah, well, as in so many other things, uh, when it comes to machinery, uh, China is the runaway world leader with about close to half the installed offshore capacity. Uh, Europe is <laughs> Europe collectively is roughly the other half. Uh, the UK accounts for about 25% of offshore installation. Germany about 10%, and then uh, other Northern European countries mostly make up the rest. Hmm. But uh, China, China is the China is the is the renewable energy, the clean energy giant of the world. And it gets so much bad publicity because of all the coal generation. But uh, we can't forget that they are really doing a job when it comes to both solar and wind energy. Yes, and they're controlling the supply chain for all of the critical or many of the Absolutely. critical minerals that are and, needed. So, and and yeah. let me tell you, they're going to be controlling the, downsc the, the downstream uses too. Just yeah. wait till you see Chinese electric vehicles all over the world. Yes. Um, so you, you mentioned in your report, you talk about the North Seas. I'm familiar with the North Sea because I've studied the, the substantial offshore oil and gas sector that many countries have developed in the North Sea. Can you just explain the difference between the North Seas and the North Sea? No, there, there's, there's essentially no difference. I mean, okay. I'm thinking of the North Sea as being similar in lots of ways to the Atlantic Canada coast, particularly the ice-free coast. Uh, south of Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. And the, the similarities are, are basically related to the constancy and the speed of the wind and to the fact that both areas have got quite a bit of water that's shallow enough to anchor turbines directly. Uh, and another similarity, which I think is really important, is, is a similar uh, cultural of environmental protection and concern about competing marine uses and things like that. So we have a huge amount to learn, fortunately, from the relatively long experience in the North Sea. And uh, also the fact that their ambition is huge. Uh, they're looking at, let's say, 300 gigawatts of wind by 2050. Uh, it's, it's also an indication that, uh, uh, that, that both the technological and the economic foundations of wind energy offshore are pretty solid. Can I ask you? That's, that's the upside, That's the positive similarity. The difference is, of course, that the 
countries that border on the North Sea have a much uh, higher population and a much uh, larger density of population. Uh, right. So, uh, and also they they really don't have many alternatives. Uh, I don't think we have many alternatives going forward, but hitherto, Canada's been blessed with lots of hydro and lots of oil and gas. So I just wanted to ask you a question that might sound silly, but you can answer it for me. Is there Are there benefits to the fact that they have a, 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 a multi-mature, multi-generation mature offshore oil and gas sector? In other words, can they reuse some of those platforms? Can they, do the, is the supply chain similar in terms of the ships that install these offshore uh, rigs and things like that is there is there alignment with the with the offshore wind industry industry over there yeah i uh, <clears throat> i'm not deeply expert on that subject i mean intuitively of course there is uh, there there's got to be a lot of overlap because there are many aspects of the of the supply chain and the operation maintenance etc which would involve similar considerations um, the ships i think are not they're not interchangeable the offshore turbine insulation vessels are very highly specialized uh, but the general skill set is similar and certainly a lot of the marine engineering and marine science uh, and familiarity with the ocean as an environment would be highly transferable and that frankly is one of the real advantages that Atlantic Canada does start with. But the disadvantage, in a sense, is that we are years and years behind the Europeans uh, in the installation of offshore wind. I mean, to the point where we currently have zero. Uh, the U.S. has essentially zero. They've got one tiny little uh, facility off the coast of Rhode Island. Uh, so we're, we're at the same position. And I think it's obviously fortunate that we have a lot to learn from the North Sea. There's a great advantage there in not making the same mistakes that they might have made. And also, uh, I think there's a real opportunity for a lot of partnership with the analysis that's being done in the U.S. Because a lot of what they're planning is going to be in the Gulf of Maine and down the coast. Very, very similar situation to our own. You talked about Sable Island and the ring around Sable Island that where the water is shallow enough to to deploy these turbines. Are there other areas uh, in the coast, yeah. uh, Newfoundland and so on, that might be uh, also uh, interesting or possibly even the Northumberland Strait and between New Brunswick and PR? Oh, sure. I, I mean, actually, the Gulf would be pretty ideal. I don't think the wind is quite as strong as it is off the uh, Atlantic coast. Uh, the challenge in the Gulf is icing. Uh, but there's been, I've read about work done in Finland where, uh, they determined that, yes, you can still operate an offshore wind farm where everything ices up. It's really a question of cost. And uh, there's a lot of factors that would go into the cost. I mean, the Gulf of St. Lawrence has uh, perhaps got uh, closer access to Quebec, let's say. Uh, and that, so the transmission cost might be less. I don't know. Uh, there's certainly all kinds of uh, areas off the Scotian Shelf and south of Newfoundland uh, that have terrific wind and have the right water depths. So uh, it really it really comes down to also the distance from shore and uh, competition with other uh, marine uses, etc. I, 
uh, I think there's not much doubt that the Sable Island Bank is, or maybe the Middle Bank, would fishermen know about that, would would be the ideal places to start. And they already could accommodate a huge amount of capacity. Uh, Nova Scotia has plans to develop five gilo, uh, gigawatts of offshore energy by 2030. Uh, as you know, that seems really not that far away. The Nova Scotia government uh, just announced uh, this week the first two locations for marine wind farms, and one of them is in Shadebuckle Bay, which is down by the strait, and the St. Yeah. George's Bay, which is on on the Gulf, uh, on the other side of the uh, Cape Breton. Uh, have you did you look at these locations when you considered your report, or are these because uh, they seem to be very close to shore? Yeah, uh, a couple of points. First of all, the five gigawatts by 2030 is a target for beginning to issue licenses. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's totally preparatory between now and then. Um, as far as the uh, the other two projects. I am aware, uh, as a result of some studies that Nova Scotia published earlier in the year, of the intention to basically establish these almost as demonstration projects. They'd be very small scale, and they're in areas where the province appears to have sufficient jurisdiction on its own uh, without having to go through a federal-provincial process, which would be required for the offshore installations. So, uh, look, I haven't haven't read the particulars of of these two projects, Mm. uh, but my view is sort of the more the merrier, and if we can learn something from a couple of projects like that, that's that's great. Uh, But don't confuse those with the scale that I'm talking about. Uh, Right. They're tinker toys by comparison. And and they may be just to support the uh, projects around the strait with Everwind and Bearhead, who we've had both of them on our, our podcast, and, and they talked about using offshore as well. Uh, the report yeah. indicates that... They, they are primarily looking onshore now, yeah. as I understand yeah. it, but yeah. okay. The, uh, the report also uh, it, well, it indicates that both onshore and offshore wind uh, presents opportunities for Atlantic Canada, but, the, but really concluded that offshore is a preferred option. Why is that the case? You know, isn't offshore wind more expensive than onshore wind? Uh, yes, and, you know, turbine by turbine for sure it is. Um, the cost trends may be a little different. I think that offshore costs may come down quicker, but onshore will probably be uh, cheaper on the face of it, uh, basically indefinitely. However, the offshore wind is stronger and steadier, uh, very strong in winter when demand is greatest. Uh, The energy output is extremely sensitive to wind speed. It goes up as the third power (laughs) of wind speed. Uh, so it is, va- if you get just, I think if you go from 11 meters per second wind speed compared to nine meters per second, uh, the 11 meter speed produces 80% more energy for the oh. same uh, nameplate capacity. Mm. So, so there's that, there's that advantage. Uh, and the fact that it's steadier, more consistent, 
is more friendly to the grid. It creates less <laughs> less problem for intermittency. It's not that there's no intermittent problem. But the intermittency problem gets quite serious when very large fractions of your generation are coming from intermittent sources. It's very easy for the grid to accommodate small amounts of intermittent energy. It is not at all easy when the amounts actually become uh, close to the majority or actually the majority. So offshore, I think, is better than onshore for the, in, in those respects. And that changes the cost calculations because you have to do a lot of other things with the grid to accommodate more intermittency. The second factor, which frankly I think is the most important, is there, there just isn't the land use uh, implications that you get with onshore. People have no concept of just how gigantic the land requirements will be, both for solar and wind, to reach the kind of volumes of renewable energy generation that we're talking about in the net zero context. And, uh, you know, offshore, frankly, that isn't going to be a constraint. Onshore, it's going to be a huge constraint. And I would say pro probably less in Atlantic Canada, frankly, but a gigantic constraint in Ontario when you think of trying to increase uh, wind generation there by 18-fold, as the energy regulator scenario predicts. And they're already having a NIMBY problem. Yeah, I, I think that's right about NIM, NIMBY. Yeah, so, so I think that that's a big, big factor. Uh, now, you can, perhaps the next question, you're not asking it, but I'll ask it myself, is, well, what about what about the interference with other uses in the case of offshore wind? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, there, let's say there aren't any of the aesthetic problems because they'll be the wind turbines will be far enough offshore that people won't see them they won't feel uh they won't hear them they won't feel that there's health effects etc uh but uh you might ask what about fishermen well uh, the first thing to realize is that for these gigantic turbines the space between them is enormous it's up to a kilometer so there's lots of room for vessels to sail between the experience in the North Sea is that it has not had an adverse effect on commercial fishing at all. Uh, similarly, uh, regular marine traffic, I think, will have no trouble uh, navigating around them. There's a lot of ocean out there when you're 100, 150 kilometers offshore. The, the larger issue uh, is probably going to come from uh, environmental groups who are very concerned about, let's say, marine mammals. Now you can say, how, how could, what's the problem there? Well, when you install the turbines in the ocean floor, you're basically pile driving and it generates powerful sound waves. And marine mammals, of course, rely on sensitive ears uh, to communicate. So they're, during the installation phase, there probably would be some effect. Uh, mind you, whales and porpoises and what have you can swim away, presumably come back eventually. There's also the the risk of bird uh, mortality. That's well known in all wind farms. Uh, but there are technical ways to reduce that that I've read about, uh, particularly work done in Scandinavia. And, and again, the experience in Northern Europe is so instructive 
and encouraging because the Northern Europeans are are very, very sensitive to environmental impact. And they seem to have uh, convinced themselves that the environmental impact of wind farms offshore is uh, control is 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 small to start with, and manageable. Uh, and and I always say that yes, there's no form of energy that doesn't have impact, but we're talking about uh, probably the least impactful form. And and frankly, uh, the environmental concern has to be weighed in the context of doing something about by far the biggest environmental threat of them all, which is climate change. So end of my little. (laughs) (laughs) That was very helpful. (laughs) Yes, it was. Peter, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but the Nova Scotia government continues to insist they're going to have uh, a coal-free grid by 2030. You just indicated to us that that the offshore wind is only going to just start get rolling in 2030. How are they going to be coal-free? Do you have any sense of how they're going to be coal-free by 2030? Well, I mean, there is... There is potential for onshore wind, and I think that most of it will have the wind component will have to be largely met through onshore. Uh, then I think there's, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously counting on uh, more power from Muskrat Falls, and uh, and I don't know how much uh, uh, can come. Uh, from New Brunswick because you, I don't think you're going to have nuclear facility expansion there to any degree by 2030. Uh, look, I can't answer that question because I'm not privy to the scenarios that uh, Nova Scotia Power would have put together. But I'm sure that NSP has, uh, has done a lot of modeling. And if they have advised the government that it's possible, then I'm certainly the last one to question that. Uh, but again, I I see that as a completely separate issue from the one I'm discussing. <laughs> yeah, be, yeah, because it, yeah. the offshore really only starts in, seriously in the 20s. It does, and its, yeah. and its objective is to basically not only provide Atlantic Canada, but primarily Canada. <laughs> it's a national so, project. Yes. So you talked earlier about some of the potential. Can you just summarize that for us again for the listeners? So how much did you say in your report, what is the potential for development? And then can you compare that to the actual demand sure. for energy in sure. uh, in the Maritimes or Atlantic Canada right now? Sure. Well, look, the potential is, is, is probably pretty unlimited. I, I worked out the numbers for 15 gigawatts, which would be about 10% of the total electricity generated in Canada now. And if that were to, let's say, that requirement double by 2050, uh, then it would be 5% of the 2050 amount. Uh, but that's that's by no means the maximum opportunity. That's, that's, that's a meaningful scale for starters. And I would stress that meaningful scale is important because if you haven't got meaningful scale, you're not going to attract the multinational players who are absolutely essential to put these projects in place and who have lots of, will have lots and lots of alternatives. So you either go big or you stay home on this issue. So 5% of the 2050 amount of electricity in Canada, I think we could do a lot more than that, but it'll depend on 
on a detailed assessment of the engineering economics, basically. But can you just sort of uh, follow up on that just for our listeners? So you're suggesting that you need some level of scale here to get the, what, the costs down? Is that is that why you're saying you have to go big or go home? Well, no, less that. I mean, yes, that's that's one factor. No, it's more just to attract the the relatively small number of global players who actually can put these facilities in place. There's a relatively small number. There's four or five in Europe, and, of course, there's two or three in China, and that's about it. Now, there is a there is a Canadian company, Northland Power, who is in the big in the offshore wind game, but only in Asia and Europe so far. So one would certainly be looking to them for a lot of advice. But uh, you know, and if we if we if we eventually developed a large uh, industry offshore in in in, uh, in Atlantic Canada. We would we would develop our own global players. Yeah, I mean we're we're at the we're still the world is still at the relatively early stages of this revolution. Obviously, uh, this represents a big opportunity for Atlantic Canada to become a, a green energy exporter, as you mentioned in your report. But it's going to take a lot of money, a lot of capital yes. investment. Uh, just yes. to, let's just take your uh, scenario of uh, Sable Island for a second. If that were to be built, uh, Peter, yeah. thousand turbines <laughs> and yeah. the infrastructure to get the electricity to shore, at least, give us an idea yeah. of how much that might take. Yeah, I, I can give you an idea. Um, currently, uh, turbines are being installed at about uh, at about three to four. Well, let's say four to five uh, uh, million dollars US per megawatt. So. When you translate that up and convert back into from U.S. to Canadian dollars, we're looking at anywhere between eighty to a hundred billion Canadian dollars uh, for fifteen gigawatts at roughly today's prices. Right. Yeah. Uh, by the time you'd actually have it installed, and we're talking about ten to fifteen years at that scale. It probably would be more, but of course the economy would have grown, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And but that's that's for the physical installation. Then you've got, of course, the adjustments to the grid. You obviously have to have a major upgrading of uh, outbound transmission heading west, uh, and you, you know you'd have to have investment by the power companies to cope with uh, with the intermittency. In other words, that would be in some cases, batteries, in other cases, uh, fossil peaking with carbon capture or something like that. So, you know, <laughs> it's 80 to 100 billion is kind of the down payment. Right. So uh, I guess my question is, you know, where's that money come from? How do, How is that financed? Uh, is it done through tax credits or, you know, how, how, how can we finance this? Yeah, some of it would. I mean, the financing in a sense is straightforward. I mean, it's it's project financing where, you know, the, the, the major cost is up front. And after that, fortunately, the, the fuel is free. Uh, so the, the, the only way to 
to finance these things is uh, basically through some agreement on the part of customers to take the power at a particular cents per kilowatt hour, let's say. Uh, and uh, the negotiation of those contracts is, uh, is kind of where the rubber does hit the road. Uh, but it, conceptually, it's pretty straightforward. And there are lots and lots of projects at that scale that have been undertaken in this country over the years, including energy projects. Uh, but uh, there's no there's no doubt that you will be competing for capital with other projects around the world of this sort. Uh, so it's it's not going to be without challenges. Now, the experience in Europe has been that uh, the public sector has had to uh, come to the table early on uh, and offer basically price guarantees to the uh, to the developers. In other words, the developer might say, you know, we'll uh, we'll we'll sell it to, to you at x cents per kilowatt hour but if somehow an alternative comes along that is 10 cents a kilowatt hour uh, the government then has to step in and make up the difference between uh, 10 and 15. Um, those are you know that that that, that same kind of uh, government uh, encouragement facilitation uh, has been seen in onshore wind developments. It's it's common in in all of these renewable projects. Europe is at the stage now where the pricing is done much more on market principles. They the developers come to auctions and say we'll do it for X, and somebody else says we'll do it for X minus. And uh, the the governments are still playing a role, but as experience develops the need for public support diminishes. The reason why it's absolutely essential for the kind of project that I've been proposing is that there is no experience in, in Canada, not even really in North America. And so uh, naturally there's, there's a lot of risk. Not as much risk as there was in Europe in the early days when there was no experience with offshore wind, period. Uh, at least we at least we know quite a bit about the economics, and we know a huge amount about the technology. So uh, there's less risk than there used to be, but it's not zero. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Atlantic Loop, as you know, it, it's kind of yeah. uh, gone sideways, I guess, uh, if not uh, not completely abandoned, yeah. because <laughs> yeah, it's literally sideways. It's just going between. It's not going to be a loop. It's going to be now a straight line going from Nova Scotia to well, from Newfoundland, Nova Scotia yeah. to uh, New Brunswick, which which is still helpful for for this concept, right? Because we need to have yes. greater transmission power or line uh, yes. capacity to be able to export the kind of energy that you're talking about. But again, this yes. is, you know, how, how do you calculate the cost of upgrading the transmission line? Because it's got to be part of the thinking, right? It's not, not just doing the wind farm. It's getting the, the no. power somewhere else. Yeah. But let me, I, I think we can begin to put this a little bit in perspective. The, the latest estimates of the Atlantic Loop cost, the the one that was rejected, were like nine billion. 
Mm. Okay, that's that's a lot, but compared to eighty to a hundred billion, it's not a gigantic uh, extra. Uh, having said that, for the kind of project I'm thinking of, we need a lot more than the Atlantic Loop that was planned. We'd have to have a great deal more capacity. I can't tell you exactly how much, but that power has to uh, go in large volumes uh, first into Quebec, and then once it's there, you know, it, 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 it's in the central Canadian grid structure. So, uh, yeah, sure, you have to build transmission. Uh, and that's going to be true no matter where energy is generated. Uh, the, the good news is that uh, very long distance transmission with extremely low power loss uh, is possible now with current technology of what they call direct high voltage, very high voltage direct current. So there is no, there's no reason in physics why you can't take energy from the Scotian shelf and heat uh, homes and, and light uh, buildings in Toronto. Uh, it's a question of the cost of constructing the lines, um, which, you know, of course, it's it's not insignificant. But once it's the, it, this is the kind of infrastructure that once in place, it's like a highway. It, uh, it lasts for very long periods of time. And as I say, the fuel is free. Well, we have some history with national projects, right? With transportation, with rail and road and microwave and telecommunications and pipelines. Of course, not pipelines into Atlantic Canada Seaways. So we've done the big, big stuff in the past. It's just a question of whether or not there's political will and interest to do it with this. Yeah, well, that you, you've, you've actually hit the key point. And that is that this country has almost forgotten how to think big and how to do really big things. And if we're serious about doing something about climate change, we have to think big. People have not gotten their heads around how gigantic this undertaking is, both globally and nationally. I say in the report, it's the decarbonization of the global energy and the national energy system is literally the greatest a project in human history. And that's not going to happen without, I guess, <laughs> getting your head around the kinds of projects that built this country in the first place. I mean, you'd start with the CPR. It's, it's, not, it's not as big as the CPR, although it, conceivably it could be. And the decarbonization of the national energy system is bigger than the CPR, even in relative terms of <laughs> comparing the 19th century with today. So the, the, I think the biggest, the biggest obstacle right now is, is people getting their heads around the sheer scale that's required if we are serious about decarbonizing uh, the energy system. And I really put that if in, in quotes in bold and italics. Uh, because if you're not prepared to think big, what you're really saying is we're really not prepared to try and, uh, and deal with uh, decarbonizing the economy. And we'll simply put up with the fossil energy system uh, till we cook. So you, you've talked already in our 
discussion today already about the supply chain. We do have a few years here on the offshore front, but are you are you worried that we wouldn't have the kind of uh, infrastructure to build all of these turbines, even if there was uh, interest to do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you have to be concerned because uh, if we're interested in doing it, there's going to be lots of places around the world that are interested and have a head start. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of pressure on the on the supply chain, uh, and in the beginning. There's no question that most of the expertise is going to come from abroad. It'll be a learning experience for us. But we do have, a. we talked earlier about the oil and gas tradition. There's a lot of transferable skills there. Uh, there's a lot of generic marine skills in Atlantic Canada, uh, including on the, on the R&D side uh, and all kinds of subspecialties. So we, we, we would have a, a, a bit of a head start in that regard. But uh, no, the, the supply chain challenge is a huge one. Uh, and frankly, it, you won't really get a lot of action, at least domestically in the supply chain, unless there's already a commitment to the project. So there's, a, there's clearly a chicken and egg issue here. And uh, in this case, we can resolve the chicken and the egg because what has to come first definitely is the commitment. And after that, the supply chain will start to develop. Yeah, so the Irving Shipyard has built vessels for the offshore oil and gas in Newfoundland and Labrador, but that requires lead time too. It takes many, many years to get that get that right. So that's a really good point. Just quickly here, I wanted to ask you about the regulatory side of things. What needs to change? You talked a little bit about the federal involvement on the on the deeper water stuff. What needs to change from a regulatory perspective to take advantage of offshore wind? Uh, well, what's what's happening right now is a study being done both off the Nova Scotia coast and the Newfoundland coast by these new uh, offshore energy boards uh, that are the successors to the old offshore petroleum board. So these are joint federal-provincial exercises, and there are already two panels at work uh, basically looking at the economic, environmental, social consequences of offshore energy development, which in the present context largely means offshore wind energy development. And those panels are supposed to report uh, by next September. Uh, and I think, you know, there has to be pressure to keep, to make sure they meet those timetables. The history, unfortunately, of, of, uh, of these kinds of studies and of permitting generally uh, has been dreadful. Uh, and that absolutely has to be accelerated, streamlined, whatever. This, if we're, again, if we're serious, this is not a time for business as usual. This is already uh, almost a, essentially a time of crisis, given the long lead times for any of these projects. So, look, uh, the, the, the first stage, therefore, of the regulatory process is underway. Let's hope it concludes on time and concludes favorably. Frankly, I'm more concerned about the about the 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 timetables of the provincial uh, utilities boards they are going to have to approve a lot of stuff <laughs> if 
if this is going to go forward in terms of grid upgrading and uh, and then power price increases and things like that. Look, in the long run, this is going to be cheaper and it will avoid all of the geopolitical risks associated with oil prices. Uh, electricity is a much more efficient form of energy. So the long run, it's it's absolutely the more economically efficient play. But in the short run, because so much of the cost is up front, you know, whether you're buying an electric vehicle or installing a wind farm, uh, there, there's going to be there's going to be some angst, and the utility boards simply have to get on board with this great transition. And if they don't, it won't happen. Peter, you've already mentioned that the transition to a green energy uh, world is probably the biggest challenge ever to face mankind. And, uh, and and in your report, you specifically say that it requires a new level of ambition, which I really like that term, by the way. Ambition has been something that we've been maybe lacking a little bit in this region. You said even audacity. I like that, too. Um, uh, so, you know, I guess I, I want your perceptions of uh, kind of what, what's the possibility that Atlantic Canada will take up this this challenge and, and, and maybe talk a little bit about the reaction that you've received to the report so far. It's only been out a short time, but I'm, I'm interested to find yeah. out what kind of reaction you're getting. Sure. Well, you know, whether whether it'll pick up the challenge, I mean, that's sort of the, the multi-hundred billion dollar question. Uh, I don't know yet. I'm, I'm optimistic because uh, Canada needs this energy. Uh, and that's why I always speak of it as a national project, not just a regional project. So all of the fiscal support doesn't have to come from the local region, although I would certainly hope that, uh, that the entrepreneurs in this region would be part of, of, of the big play and certainly will play a role in the development of the supply chain. Uh, the reaction so far has been as I've heard it, has been po very positive, but it's certainly positive in the media. I was on a phone-in show on the CBC uh, last Sunday, and everybody was enthusiastic. Uh, I, I, Frankly, I don't think that people have gotten their heads around the scale of this, and it's kind of being treated as just one more straw in the wind, <laughs> to mix metaphors a little bit here. Uh, so it's too soon to know whether, uh, some champions will step forward. I mean, I've, I've done nothing but planted a seed. I simply wrote this report to try and get a conversation going about a project that was explicit and to get, try and get people's heads around what's going to be required if we are serious about net zero. So we, we've got to wait to hear from both the federal and the provincial governments. I, I know that Minister Wilkinson kind of alluded, frankly, to the report when in the press conference after the meeting a, a week or two ago on the Atlantic Loop, and he was already hinting that maybe the Atlantic Loop will be reborn, but in a different context and taking offshore wind into central Canada. So I'm hopeful that the federal government will will be behind this. I'm obviously hopeful that the provincial governments will, and that 
and that they will see that this is a this is the kind of project that just like the tide that lifts all boats. I mean, we're a small region, and if a wind farm happens to be off the coast of Nova Scotia, that doesn't mean that New Brunswick and PEI and Newfoundland aren't going to benefit from it too. I mean, we're a compact piece of geography, and there's more than enough opportunity for everybody. Uh, but still, having said that, we need champions to come forward. I, I'm not the champion for this. I can be a champion in terms of talking up the report, but you know, I'm not. I'm not the one to take it to the next stage. Uh, I do have some conversations planned with you know, with some people from senior people in the federal government. Uh, the province, at a relatively low level, has reached out to me a couple of times, so I'll be talking to them. Um, and uh, you know, I know a few people in the utility business across the country, so you know, I'll continue obviously to to promote it, but very quickly we get to the stage where uh, some people who can actually make things happen have to take up the cudgel. Can I ask you one question that wasn't on sure. the, the question list here, but it, it, it just popped in my mind because I've been thinking about it in other contexts. What's in it for Nova Scotia? So when they oh. developed the Sable uh, offshore uh, gas field, they, they ended up with a $2 billion revenue stream from royalties. As I understand it, there's no royalties on offshore wind. So, other than a few jobs when you're building these facilities, what you know, the what's in it for the government of Nova Scotia to do this? Now they're going to have all these turbines offshore. The fishermen are going to be all cranky. You know, there's going to be bird issues and marine issues. What, what what's right. in it for government? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let's hope that the fishermen and the bird environmentalists learn that, frankly, this isn't going to be a big problem for them. But in, in terms of what's in it for government, I mean, obviously there is the the immediate and proximate and continuing jobs associated with something like this. There will be revenue coming into the uh, into the region uh, from the sale of the electricity to uh, other jurisdictions, whether it's Ontario or Quebec or what have you. Um, so there's, you know. Is that in the form of royalty to the province? Probably not, but it's definitely in the form of cash coming into the region, which does get recycled and will be recycled all the more, uh, the greater the extent to which we develop the supply chain. So there's that. That's that's kind of associated with the project directly. To my mind, the really big payoff is the industry that will be attracted to this part of the world where there is a very large, abundant supply of completely clean electricity. Electricity is going to be the motive force of the world economy, and it has to be clean. And the industries that, let's say, were attracted to Quebec by all of its clean hydropower, when they weren't really looking for clean, they were just looking for power, they they put an enormous jolt into the Quebec economy. Well, I see a similar opportunity here, that it's more the the next generation of uh, economic development uh, that will be most significant for the province in the longer run. But, I mean, this is something that requires that kind of a vision. Uh, it probably isn't going to do a whole lot for people within the next four or five years, uh, but then within the 10 to 15 year period, 
there'd be a very significant employment implication. Uh, 15 gigawatts would require about 30,000 person years of employment for several years just to put in place. And then about, you know, somewhere between 12 and 1500 jobs forever on the operation and maintenance side. And they'd be really good jobs. And, and then you develop an industry that, that, would, that would actually be an export factor in taking these skills and selling them to other parts of the world that are, want to develop wind. I can see a big engineering consulting business, for instance. Yeah, it goes on and on. I mean, this is what eventually happens. You can't predict in advance down to a dollar. I know there are all kinds of models that do this, but, you know, <laughs> they deserve a little bit of skepticism. But, but history has shown that when you have a key strategic resource, uh, economic benefit uh, is attracted to it. <laughs> and I'm sure that that would be the case here. Last question, Peter. Are you optimistic that Atlantic Canada will seize this enormous opportunity and become an energy superpower? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I am optimistic. I mean, it's often been said that you know, we'll do the right thing when we've exhausted all the alternatives. But uh, I, I'm optimistic because the world is going to decarbonize the energy system eventually for economic reasons, not just for climate change reasons. For that to happen in Canada, we're going to have to generate a humongous amount of wind. We've got a humongous amount of wind off offshore that is more readily accessible uh, than a lot of onshore areas, given NIMBY and all these other factors. So I, when I look at the, uh, at the fundamentals of the proposition, I can't help but be optimistic. Having said that, there will be a lot of bumps in the road betwixt here and there. And there's always the risk, for instance, that the Americans will do what we're planning to do in the Gulf of Maine, and build a, a big transmission facility up into Quebec or into Ontario, and it'll be the New England loop instead of the Atlantic loop, uh, that would be tragic. But one way or another, something like this is going to happen. Peter, thank you for writing this important report and for joining us on the Insights Podcast today to talk about it. We will follow this very closely with great interest, and thanks again for coming on. Yeah, well, thanks for doing it. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it hugely. Thanks, Peter. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.